0: You're listening to the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast, episode 51. This week, we're talking to Brian Day, the director of communication and citizen science for NASA's Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute, also known as Survey. In fact, this week, scientists from all over are coming to Ames for the fourth annual NASA Exploration Science Forum hosted by SERVI, to discuss a wide range of topics about the inner solar system. Brian works on outreach programs based on lunar science and planetary exploration. He also provides outreach support for web-based mapping tools for exploring the Moon and Mars, as well as digital imaging and tracking systems that track meteors as they fall to the Earth. So, for all that and more, here is Brian Day. us a little bit about yourself, how you got to NASA, how you got to Silicon Valley.
1: I got to Silicon Valley years ago, actually as a software engineer, so no points for originality there. Um, I did some volunteer work at NASA Ames and uh, actually was helping out with the website and kind of like the... Mammoths at the La Brea tar pits. I got stuck and kind of sucked in. And so, uh, once it brings I, you in, you can't quite get out. Yeah, so I've been here for uh, 17 years now and uh, having a lot of fun doing it.
0: Was this like the early days? Are we thinking Prodigy? Are we thinking GeoSites? How far back are we going on these websites? Well,
1: um, I was actually uh, I was teaching uh, web programming and JavaScript at oh, wow. uh, San Jose State at the time. And uh, some of the websites here needed a little bit of help. And so <laughs> I, eh, I came in to do that.
0: Yeah, cool. So then from from that, I mean, you just kind of got to know people or how did that? Yeah, my uh,
1: well, um, my background is I, I'm, I was a pilot oh, and wow. also an astronomer. Uh, okay. And so it uh, turned out from a content standpoint, uh, there was some job possibilities for me to move into, and so uh, I've just kind of bounced around the center doing a variety of different things, and now I'm at the Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute, Uh, way too long a name, but a really cool place, (laughs) and uh, leading up, Planetary mapping and modeling there, as well as citizen science and a number of other cool projects that I get to work with, including the Desert Fireball Network.
0: Oh, cool! So tell people a little bit the the Solar System. The the long word. It's an acronym yeah. for SERVI.
1: Yeah. So what is this Solar yeah, System what Exploration is Research Virtual Institute? It's a really neat. Institute, headquartered here at NASA Ames, but with research facilities and teams scattered across the country and around the world, bringing together the disciplines of planetary science as well as exploration. Mm -hmm. So we're taking a look at, from a science and engineering standpoint, looking at destinations within the inner solar system where we might, in the reasonable future, actually send humans. So it's a very, very exciting area. We're looking at our moon, the moons of Mars, the asteroids, that type of thing.
0: And then previously, it was called the lunar.
1: We were at one renaming. point the NASA Lunar Science Institute, okay, and we were focused on the moon. And then headquarters gave us a bigger sandbox to play. Nice. You get the whole solar system now. Well, we, we're, st- we're still staying in the inner solar system, <laughs> you know, but uh, it, it's definitely a bigger and quite frankly, really interesting playground to play in. Yeah, cool. For for the folks
0: listening, we have, you know, the podcast, but we also have different videos, little um, short videos we put up on YouTube and up on Facebook. And there was one that we were working with you on um, for the, it was lunar and the Mars mapping, That's correct? right,
1: that's right. So
0: how'd you get looped into that stuff? Right?
1: Well, that's a, that's a fascinating program. So uh, we actually are producing these mapping and modeling portals that consist of visualization and analysis tools that help us do planetary science, but also are designed to help us do site selection and analysis for okay. upcoming missions. So, for instance, we are involved right now in developing tools and analysis for selecting the first human landing sites on Mars. This is really cool stuff, and there's some really neat destinations on Mars to go to. But beyond producing these tools for mission planners and planetary scientists, we are tasked to also make all of this available and accessible Mm -hmm. to students and the general public, because it is absolutely essential that the public not just watch us do this, but actually be participants in this process. That's really key because when we talk about one of these Mars exploration zones, we're talking about a circle Mm -hmm. with a 100-kilometer radius. Okay, That's a really big area. And we've got a bunch of these that we're examining right now. So if you go to Mm marstrek.jpl.nasa.gov, and anyone's welcome to do that, you'll be able to explore Mars as seen through the eyes of many different instruments aboard many different spacecraft. And in the next few months, we're going to be adding a lot more data, focusing on these potential landing sites. And as we are... Pointing our high-resolution cameras on these now specific areas and gathering more and more data. We're going to need as many eyes as possible looking at these areas scouring these Mm -hmm. areas seeing them in resolutions that we've never seen before and Helping us identify what are the really cool features? What are the really cool things that we will want to explore? Again, this is an area where not only can the public participate, we desperately want Need them. To. <laughs> yes, this is this is something we're all gonna do together. So, you know, we manage this out of uh, the Survey Institute here yeah. at NASA Ames, but we have a really brilliant development team down at JPL. And so they are uh, they're putting together we've got this Mars Trek, so that's M-A-R-S-T-R-E-K. Okay. jplnasagovernor we We've also got Moon Trek. So you can explore the moon in fine detail. We've done one for the asteroid Vesta. And surprisingly enough, it's called Vesta Trek. (laughs) Excellent. And we've got more coming down the pipe. So uh, really, really exciting stuff.
0: And where where does most of that information come from? Is it coming from the satellites? Yes. So
1: we have a number of spacecraft right now in orbit around Mars and we've had some in the past. So this this gathers historical data as well as current data. And you can have, in the case of the Moon, and in the case of Mars, many, many, many different instruments aboard a variety of different missions, yeah. allowing you to take a look at the surface as seen through visible light, through laser altimetry, through spectrometry. Yeah through gravity mapping, a wide variety of things. And so it gives you the ability to really see the surface in many, many, many different ways.
0: And you get a kick out of it, because I remember talking from people who are working on you know, Kepler or on any of these other telescopes where they're gathering in all this data, but then they turn and look to the scientific community to be like, of course, yeah, we have NASA scientists who are sifting through this stuff, but also open it up to the scientific community. See, like, see what you guys can see. This isn't that much different in the sense of, here is all the information we know about the surface, and like what can you know the community students, researchers, other labs, what can they figure out using the same data? Yeah,
1: absolutely, and this is something that we see all of the time is uh, if you take a look in the astronomy community, you have a constant flow of discoveries being made by amateurs. It's different than nuclear science or biophysics or some of these other yeah. fields of science. In astronomy, the amateur community plays a huge role. And so, you know, people with backyard telescopes, we've been involving them in some of our missions for a long time, and they're doing really valuable work. Uh, Back during the LADEE mission, which we ran, again, out of NASA Ames here, we had amateur astronomers monitoring the surface of the moon and actually recording meteoroid impacts on the surface of the moon during the course of the mission, looking at how those impacts could cause changes, possibly to the atmosphere and the dust content above the lunar surface.
0: You'd mentioned earlier the fireball network. So right. what exactly is that? So what is, no is the Desert like
1: Fireball Network? Okay, so Survey consists of about, oh, nine domestic research teams scattered throughout the country, and 10 international partners around the world. Oh, wow. And our Australian partner, uh, which is run out of Curtin University, they have put together this really cool network of autonomous cameras spread out across the Australian outback. I don't know if you've ever been to the Australian outback. Not yet. It is Quite an impressive desert. I just hear very large bugs. Yeah, well, yeah, (laughs) and large expanses of wide-open nothing. Okay. Which is actually, in some cases, really good. So, for instance, if you are looking for a meteorite, it will stand out there very nicely. So, we have over 50 of these autonomous camera stations scattered across the Australian outback, looking up at the sky above... 2.5 million square kilometers. Wow. And these camera stations actually overlap their fields of view. So, as a fireball comes down through the atmosphere, we can image it on multiple cameras and therefore get a precise 3D path of that fireball as it comes down through the atmosphere. We're able to locate its precise position to within a minute of arc. Mm -hmm. And these cameras actually have LCD shutters that are flickering on and off, on and off, timed to a GPS signal. And so if you think of a camera taking a picture of a fireball, you'd get this nice streak coming down through the sky. But with that shutter flickering on and off, it turns into a series of dots and dashes that encode the time, the precise time off the GPS, to within a millisecond. So with this, we get the precise path of the fireball coming down through the sky, as well as its velocity, and how fast it decelerates. And that can tell us what its mass is. And then the system can actually tell us, is this big enough that it may have actually dropped actual rocks on the ground? Or if it burned up. Right. Did it burn up before before reaching the ground, or was this big enough to actually leave meteorites on the surface? And And if so, it tells us where to go look for them. But even better than that, the system can also back calculate. What the oh, object's wow, yeah. orbit was before it encountered the Earth,
0: like a forensic scientist, you're working backwards. Exactly, to see
1: what happened. CSI Solar System. <laughs> nice. So trademarked, Brian. Yeah. May. <laughs> so what we are able to do is, if you can find these rocks on the ground, freshly fallen rocks from space, and then you can trace back Where'd where they end? came from within the solar system, possibly what asteroid family they belong to. Hmm. Now you have something that you can actually determine the mineralogy of and see where it came from. It's a sample return mission on the incredible cheap. Oh, wow. Really? Oh, yeah. You don't have to really, go out and grab it. Wait exactly, for it to come to you. Exactly. So, it's a re- and so to date, we've gotten four of these okay. where we've seen them come in and actually recovered the stones off the ground. And some of them have been really, really fascinating. The most recent one actually yeah. came in last Halloween, October 31st, lit up the sky, and the cameras oh, wow. caught it, and the team went charging out into the outback and found this beautiful, beautiful meteorite, freshly fallen.
0: Oh, wow. You can think of YouTube videos or things that people have seen of, like, you know, dash cams that exactly. capture that flash
1: yeah. and that
0: coming in. You think
1: of, yeah, and it it makes you think well why would why do we do this totally. what's what's, okay. what's the purpose behind it apart from being really cool well yeah i really, mean that's really cool it's fun <laughs> but there are several really good reasons to do this one is from a pure science standpoint of understanding these rocks so again i'm i'm an astronomer okay Now, astronomers are not the only scientists at NASA. We're just the best-looking scientists at NASA. (laughs) Nice, But there are many, many different types of (laughs) of scientists here at NASA, and and some of them are geologists. And if you become a geologist, you learn to be able to hear the stories that rocks have to tell. Rocks can tell you stories of how they formed, when they formed, where they formed, the conditions under which they formed. And it is very much in our interest to understand this planet that we live on. Very much so. We are very tied to this planet still to this day. (laughs) And so the better we understand it, the better we do. Um, But as a geologist, you would love to be able to find the really early rocks from the beginning of the Earth, Mm -hmm. but we can't find those. Yeah, Because the Earth is subject to wind and rain and and plate tectonics. All those really early rocks are gone. Mm -hmm. We can't get those stories. But as we retrieve these meteorites, yeah. many of them are pristine samples from the earliest days of the solar system. And they can tell us how the Earth formed and how the other planets in our solar system formed. And they also, in a number of cases, will carry fascinating, fascinating organic chemistry oh, wow. They can tell us how we got started, how life got started. That's cool stuff. So from a scientific standpoint, these things are a gold mine. But then there's another, perhaps more practical reason to be doing this. Um, We think of space as being empty, (laughs) but it's not. There are these flying rocks out there that can cause great damage. Just ask the dinosaurs. <laughs> Wait, well you figure this, the stars are the stuff, that, that's the stuff you can see
0: because it, it literally it emits light but there's all kinds of rocks, There's all kinds planets. of stuff that
1: can sneak uh, up on you. So, as a yeah. matter of fact, several times a year we will have asteroids come inside the moon's orbit, closer okay. to us than the moon. In many cases, they sneak up on us. Yeah. That's not a good thing. <laughs> not um, a good, weird, an example back in uh, February of 2013, Okay. we had an asteroid about 17 meters in diameter, about 10,000 tons, come charging in, hitting our atmosphere over Siberia, over Russia. Okay. And blowing up over the city of Chelyabinsk.
0: Okay. This is like as it burns up coming into the atmosphere. That's right.
1: Boom. And it blew up with... Uh, about 500 kilotons of oh, force it yeah. was dramatic especially yes. when you think that the Hiroshima It'll bomb win. the Hiroshima bomb was 16 kilotons oh wow so this was big yeah. this was really big we estimate that from these incoming space rocks mm-hmm. we can get a Hiroshima sized blast here in the earth's atmosphere about once every 10 years. Oh, wow. But then there are the bigger ones. <laughs> then there are the real big ones that you have to worry about. There are over a million estimated near Earth asteroids with diameters greater than 30 meters. Remember, Chelyabinsk was only 17 meters. Okay. And that sent people to the hospital, damaged buildings. Yeah over a million of these things greater than 30 meters, and we've detected less than 1% of them. Oh, wow. So understanding this near-Earth environment that we live in, that's important. So as the Fireball Network is out there determining these orbits and where the stuff is coming from, that's an environment we want to understand.
0: And looking at that network, um, I mean, obviously – I'm imagining it's not seeing
1: things until they're really, really close. That's right. So the the Desert Fireball Network only records these things as they are entering the atmosphere. Okay, a little bit of terminology is probably appropriate here. (laughs) When these objects, when these rocky objects are out in space, we call them meteoroids. Okay. Okay. As they come into the atmosphere and through... Friction and ram pressure heat up mm-hmm. as they collide with the, atmo- the molecules in our atmosphere yeah. and light up the sky. That is called a meteor. Okay. And if pieces survive and make it to the ground and you can pick them up, yeah. then those are meteorites. Okay. So meteoroid out in space, meteor as it's coming down through the atmosphere, meteorite when you pick it up mm-hmm. off the ground. Now, a typical meteor, if you go out and you watch, say, a meteor shower at night, and yeah. the typical meteor, you see the falling star. That's caused by an object about the size of a grain of sand. Oh, really? And your typical meteor is about the size of a grain of sand. But what if something comes in that's bigger, yeah. a rock or a boulder? Then that really lights up the sky. It is spectacular. That is what we call a fireball. Wow, And that's what the Desert Fireball Network is recording. It's recording these big chunks. You know, the little pieces of sand, they vaporize before they get anywhere close to the ground. But the big chunks coming in that cause the fireballs, that have a chance of putting something on the ground that we can actually examine, that's what we're after with the Desert Fireball Network. And the Desert Fireball Network has, again, this has had great success out in the Australian outback. Mm -hmm. But now, what we're trying to do, working with our colleagues in Australia, to expand the Desert Fireball Network. Oh, wow. So what we want to do is make it so it's not just an Australian network, but now it's an international network. So what we're doing is we're working on expanding this to additional locations within North America, including in the U.S., I was going to say, the
0: desert areas, looking at Nevada,
1: Utah. The desert southwest of the U.S. is a prime place. There's other places in North America that are great. South America has some wonderful locations. We're talking with Africa, locations in Asia. We're really looking at expanding this so we get a more complete view. So this is what our job is right now. Is to work with the Australian team and our colleagues and international partners to expand the desert fireball network from being a local Australian network to becoming a global international network.
0: And this is the, the critical NASA role in this whole part is like, you know making for sure that you know not only that NASA does its own science, but it's making sure that people aren't living on islands under themselves to make those connections and be like, oh, cool, these people in Australia are doing this. How can we connect you with other people of like-minded, similar projects?
1: So we're like learning as a group instead of just on our own in silos. Exactly. This is what NASA is able to really bring to the table. Yeah. And so that's that's exciting. So this is a very exciting time. We're finding a number of potential partners around the world that are, really quite enthusiastic about uh, becoming part of this. So this is going to be a lot of fun, but as we look at these partnering institutions around the world, it gets bigger and better than that because, again, this is where we can involve not just the research institutions, not just the scientists the professional scientists Mm -hmm. but this is where we can get the citizen scientists involved so one of the things that this team in australia has done so well they've put together this incredible mobile app okay called fireballs in the sky and that allows people just Anyone. Go download this. Who happens to – yeah, it's I available it's for Android. It's available for iOS. You install it on your mobile phone. And if you see a fireball, <laughs> and you really want to see one, believe me, they yeah. are fun to watch. But if you see one of these things, this app allows you to essentially submit your observation through augmented reality. Okay. You can hold – your phone up, see that part of the sky where it was. If there's still a train visible, you can use that as a guide. But you have a number of parameters that it will prompt you for that allows you to essentially recreate that fireball that you just saw, its brightness, its color, its duration, how it fragmented. Did it make a sound? Oh, wow. And you can can reconstruct what you just saw. And Mm -hmm. when it's just right, then you can submit that. Okay. And so it's more data points. More, exactly. It's more data points. It enhances and it expands upon the camera network. And so uh, when we had our last uh, meteor reco- meteorite recovery mm-hmm. down in Australia, a number of the observations came from people using these apps
0: on their cell phone. Are you guys able to do it retroactively? Well, in, in the sense of, I think of when something happens like that, the YouTube videos start popping up like crazy. Does right. That, so this is, you know, I mean, it's
1: always great if you could catch it on video. Totally. Hard to do. But, again, these things make quite an impression. And so yeah. if you see one, you <laughs> want to immediately, you can grab your phone and you point it to just where you were looking. And you reconstruct what you just saw while it's still fresh in your mind. Yeah. And one of the great things about these fireballs is oftentimes they will leave a glowing train in the sky that can be a nice prompt for you.
0: Yeah, even after it's shocked you and you're like, oh, my gosh, what happened? Yeah. Then you can pull your phone up and mm-hmm. just capture it and bring it in.
1: Yeah, so um, you can learn a lot more about fireballs in the sky yeah. by going to... Fireballsinthesky.com.au, as in Australia. Nice. And you can get all kinds of wonderful details about this fantastic app. And you can become part of the Desert Fireball Network team as we expand this into being a global network.
0: And what what do you see as the next steps after that? Because when you're talking about tracking these fireballs, understanding how, like where they landed, but then also looking backwards of where they came from. I mean, I think for most people, like thing goes into your head of like, how can this prevent us from knowing when things are coming? Is that it's probably outside of the scope of this, but I would imagine Well
1: yeah, it's it's part of a bigger question. Yeah. You're right. And our ultimate goal is planetary defense. And NASA has an office just for that, mm-hmm. protecting ourselves from these things that go thump in the night in a really <laughs> big and nasty big way. Flash. And I like to point out to people that the first step in protection is detection. Exactly. And so one of the things that is happening now is a new generation of telescopes and observatories is being established with an express purpose of monitoring the sky for these flying rocks. We don't have anywhere close to 100% coverage yet. Yeah, But we're working on it and we're getting to the point now where we have actually been able successfully to actually see this whole life cycle of an object from being a meteoroid in space Mm -hmm. when we first detected it and be able to say, hey, This is going (laughs) to meet us. (laughs) Yes. So we've been able to see it as a meteoroid and then record it as a meteor lighting up the sky and then even picking up pieces on the ground as meteorites. So the technology is now getting to the point where we can do that. That's important. That is important. And as we build bigger and greater numbers of these telescopes, we'll be able to get a more accurate census of these objects and be able to give ourselves bigger and bigger lead times and that is the key to planetary defense having enough time to do something if you know something's coming your way yeah but you have years of notice then a little shove can amount to a big difference over time. Yes, absolutely. But if you only discover it a couple days in advance, (laughs) then it's just kind of put your hands over your head and... uh, Hope. (laughs) Yeah. So understanding this environment, this near-earth environment that we live in, is key. And so that's why with the Desert Fireball Network, we're not just about finding these objects on the ground. But understanding their orbits, understanding this environment of where we have these orbits that are crossing the Earth's orbit, that's important.
0: Cool. Uh, this is it's fascinating stuff and a good point of the whole detection versus protection. You, people see movies like Armageddon or Deep Impact, and yeah. you know, especially as, as children of the '90s, <laughs> your head goes into it.
1: But it's like you like at this point, we need to understand what is even out. there. That's right. Here's something so. that we can actually do. Here's something how anyone can participate in, quite frankly, an effort that may Absolutely. save the world. You know, when faced with this kind of disaster or potential disaster, realistically, the solution is never going to be giving Bruce Willis and the Clear Bomb. That's rarely <laughs> the answer a to any of, problem, you know?
0: A bunch of ocean oil drillers, put them on up into giving, a spaceship. Go giving
1: thousands <laughs> of people these apps to go out there and track and monitor and understand, understand. this near-Earth environment that we live in. That's something, that's something that could really work.
0: And for those folks, if they have any questions, anything for for Brian, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. So anybody who has any questions, they can just go ahead and ping us. We'll hook uh, hook it on up over to Brian. Um, I have a feeling that this will be one of many conversations we'll be having in the future.
1: I look forward to it. Excellent, well thanks for coming on over. Thank you so much.